Okay, welcome to day 112 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Joshua chapters 1 and 2, Proverbs chapter 10 verses 11 through 20, and Luke 21, 5 through 38. In case you can't tell it, I am a little bit sick, so you're going to have to bear with me here. Um, but that's uh, that's just how, how it goes, right? Okay, so Joshua 1 and 2, we are now out of the Pentateuch and into um, what are uh, typically called the Old Testament historical books. And so that's going to be Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, and we will be there for a while. And we uh, pick up in the beginning of Joshua pretty much right where we left off uh, in Deuteronomy. The people are poised to go into the land. Joshua is poised to lead them. And the Lord is ready to fulfill his promises uh, to the forefathers of Israel to give them the land of Canaan. Um, so Moses, uh, first we're told after the death of Moses, all of this is happening. And then the Lord speaks to Joshua um, and tells him to arise and to go at every place upon which the sole of your foot will tread. I will give to you. Um, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Uh, recall that that, uh, that, was a, that was a thing we noted the other day where uh, that uh, very essential part of who God is and how he, um, how he uh, promises his ser- promised his servant Moses to be with him in his entire endeavor, but you know, going before the Pharaoh of Egypt and then uh, bringing the people out, leading them through the wilderness. And Moses was very unconfident in his own abilities to do any of this. And the Lord's answer to him was, I will be with you. And so just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you is now the promise to Joshua. Um, I will not leave you or forsake you. Again, this is uh, kind of like reigning some of this language from that we saw in Deuteronomy, uh, notably here, that I will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6, uh, as well as 31.8, I uh, noted there that it is, uh, repeated in Hebrews 13.5, and then also the command to be strong and courageous from Deuteronomy 31 as well, verses 6 through 7 and verse 23, to not deviate from the law to the right from the uh, to the right hand or to the left. Don't turn to the right or the left. That's Deuteronomy 28.14. So we have a lot of these themes from Deuteronomy being uh, being carried over uh, into this. Uh, in fact, the uh, the theology of Deuteronomy, the, the 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 stuff that really gets emphasized in Deuteronomy, not saying it's not present in the rest of the Pentateuch, is such that um, uh, some would refer to, or many um, Old Testament scholars actually refer to this block of historical material um, up through Kings as the Deuteronomistic history. That um, uh, it seems to be have this uh, this flavor of Deuteronomy. Um, the things that Deuteronomy says is important are important. That's basically how kings and everybody else is evaluated. And uh, the things that uh, happen um, happen and are described according to the language of Deuteronomy. So you see a lot of that here. The, uh, the task of Joshua, uh, interestingly, is a lot like the task of the Israelite kings that we saw in Deuteronomy 17. In, in leading the people, his primary task is to be uh, careful to do, I'm reading from verse 7, according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. 
that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written on it. Um, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Um, so again, as, as the king's first task was to handwrite the law of God and to read it all the days of his life that he would know how to um, how to conduct himself, how to order his people, what the Lord requires of him. Um, so the same is true with Joshua here. Um, you you have interestingly the uh, the the concept of of meditating on Scripture here. The concept of meditation here is of course different than it is in say Eastern religions, where often the idea is to clear one's mind, uh, to empty one's mind, <clears throat> or to uh, you know uh, repeat mantras. Uh, biblical meditation, on the other hand, uh, is, is about filling one's mind with God's Word, and uh, this includes reciting it out loud. And so the, the Hebrew verb um, that's translated here, meditate, actually often refers to, to people speaking out loud. Um, it's what we do with our tongues, what we do with our throats, what we do with our mouths. Um, in fact, uh, there's even one passage, I, I like this one, um, Isaiah 31.4 speaks, uh, uses the verb to describe a lion growling over his prey. So the way I kind of think about it is, is you know, having the, the content of uh, God's word kind of rolling around in your mind all day, be, let, let that be what you think about, let that be what, uh, and even perhaps especially memorization, because memorization involves a lot of repetition and reciting of God's word. So Joshua um, assumes a command here. He goes to the officials and uh, he tells them to make ready uh, because in three days we're going to be going over the Jordan to take possession of it. And uh, then he goes and he, he reminds the Reubenites, the Gadonites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that is East Manasseh, of their duty. That is, even though uh, they, are, uh, they live across the Jordan and their land has already been secured and taken, that they must go across the Jordan with their with the other tribes, and and help them to take possession of the land there. And so the um, the first thing that um, <clears throat> that is really done here is that Joshua sends two spies um, sh from Shittim um, uh, and tells them go view out the land, especially Jericho. Jericho being the first city that the Israelites will encounter. They are sent from uh, the town of Shittim, which um, is, uh, I don't know if uh, this is something, the kind of thing that uh, people tend to remember or not, but um, back in Numbers 25, this is where the worship of Baal Peor took place. So perhaps this is meant to be kind of a, a subtle reminder of how fragile the people's obedience is. Uh, but the, the spies do come to Jericho and... Um, they are taken in there by a woman named Rahab, who has a home in the wall of the city, um, which is uh, not particularly uncommon. In fact, the uh, the walls of Jericho, um, Jericho is is a um, an archaeological site that has been located. We know where it is, and it's uh, it was ex excavated quite a few years ago, um, and the. Uh, and, you know, projects still continue there. And it is pretty clear that rows of houses did function as part of the city walls, um, just as we see in several other 
sites of the same time period, which is the Late Bronze Age. Um, in this area, Megiddo is like that, uh, Lachish is like that, um, a, a bunch of others, Tel Beit Mitzrim. So she actually takes these men in, and uh, it's interesting. A lot of this story is kind of told in hindsight. The things that you, uh, the things that you uh, find out about it. So uh, uh, it, it's told the king, "Behold, the men of Israel come here tonight. Have come here tonight to search out the land." And so then he goes and he sends them to Rahab, and he says, "Bring out the men who have come to you." Um, and then you're told in hindsight, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and uh, she tells him. No, they took off. They're already gone. Uh, they, they wanted to get out of here before it got dark. So, um, but you better go after them. Better chase them uh, and get them. Uh, and then you're told, but she had again in hindsight taking them, taken them up to the roof and had hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid on her roof. So she's hidden these men on her roof, um, and the, the the men whom the king sent uh, go outside the city to pursue uh, on this wild goose chase now. And uh, and again, back to uh, telling us in hindsight, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. So there's a lot of like hindsight narration here, which I think is an interesting feature of this little story, part of what we might call the narrative texture. Um, uh, and then we're told, uh, in her own words, <clears throat> why she's doing this. And she says, "I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the and the and that the fear of you has fallen upon us." And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So this idea of the God's fame, his reputation, um, the, the knowledge of, of what has happened in Egypt, and now uh, they are coming into the land of Canaan, uh, the people are aware. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Sea of Reeds before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. <clears throat> And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Notice there, that confession on, on Yah, like that, that Rahab has come to understand and to accept that, you know, the Lord, that, that this God of the, these Israelites, he is real and he is powerful, and to stand against him is, is futile. And so she has this kind of shrewd plan. Um, Please swear to me now by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me in my father's house. And so long story short, she um, uh, they they agree that um, that as long as uh, you keep this secret, um, don't tell anybody about us. um, We will deal kindly with you when we come into this city. And so they tell him to to hang a scarlet thread from the window and anybody in her house is to receive the same protection. And then of course they depart and they come back to Joshua and they say, truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now it is interesting that the conquest narrative of Joshua begins with this, that it begins with a a pagan woman who is engaged in a profession that is forbidden by by the law of God, um, basically yoking herself to Israel and saying that your, you know, your God is God and the Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And I understand that like the following him is tremendous blessing and walk, turning away from him and refusing 
to live according to his law, that is, that is futile. That is, um, that is where cursing lies. And she, as we, as we'll see, she does become part of Israel. And I think that, that that is put forward as a bit of a, um, a paradigm example, because there are several places, as we will see, in which people who are not genetic stock of Abraham, people who are not genetically descended from Abraham, are nevertheless still part of Israel at this point. That there are others who do who do join them, and I think that it's reasonable to say that Rahab is just one of them. Rahab is just one such instance, right? This whole conquest would have taken years. There's other things that happened that that are just that are simply not told in in the scriptures. There's a very specific story that um, we're being told here by jo- the book of Joshua. So, um, and, and then and then likewise, as we'll see very soon, an Israelite man named Achan uh, puts himself. Uh, he essentially defects to the other side. So you have you have people who are not genetically related to a- Abraham. Uh, coming into Israel, and you have those who are, but who are not faithful to the Lord, and instead uh, tur- turn away from what He's commanded them to do, and they are um, they become essentially Canaanites. This whole idea that God is not just simply on the side of Israel because of who they're descended from and opposed to everybody else will be confirmed tomorrow. Uh, in a passage about the, the the appearance of the angel of Yahweh to Joshua and what he says there. So heads up for that when you read that. Okay, that's it for Joshua today. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 10, where we're going to be looking at verses uh, 11 through 20. So uh, note here that we have a lot of uh, Proverbs that have to do with uh, the, the mouth, the tongue, speech. Okay, so you've got the uh, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the viol- of the wicked conceals violence. Um, then you've got uh, verse 13, on the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Um, verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Um, uh, verse 19, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. So, a lot having to do with speech and the way in which you speak is uh, either a tremendous blessing, a fountain of right, uh, a fountain of life for the righteous, um, or a tremendous um, uh, cause for ruin. So our speech has a lot of power here, and the way you wield your speech is um, is is can be in accordance with wisdom or can be in accordance with with folly. Um, I think also the, one of the verses from today, verse fifteen. Um, really uh, is a good example of a proverb that speaks very observationally and, and realistically, right? A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. This, as I said, is, is very observational, right? It's, um, it's kind of like a hard fact of life that, uh, that wealth does to some extent insulate us in a way that's comparable to the walls of a city, um, whereas poverty can destroy or ruin a person. And of course, this isn't the only thing that Scripture teaches about the topic of wealth and riches. Like, think about Psalm 49, which I think, was that, was that yesterday we read that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> which uh, talks about how uh, those who trust in wealth and boast in their riches, nevertheless, are going to uh, meet the same fate. 
nobody can ransom the, the another person or give to God the price of his life. And so don't be afraid of a man when he becomes rich, verse 16, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. So <clears throat> all that to say that you know, Proverbs, you, you always have to be kind of wise in your interpretation of them, that, that they always, they provide true but limited perspectives on things. And that we, we certainly see here in this morning's reading. Okay, let's finally go to Luke chapter 21, verses uh, 5 through 38, where we begin to encounter uh, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus uh, speaks of what will characterize this age all the way up through his second coming. And so, um, again, it, it just like it did in Matthew, it's, it's, uh, it kind of gets kicked off with this, uh, this, these comments about how beautiful the noble stones are of the temple and the offerings and everything. And uh, Jesus gives this kind of like Debbie Downer statement here, right? As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this is Jesus speaking about the the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which, of course, in hindsight, we know uh, happened in 70 AD. And they ask him, the two questions, uh, just like what we what we've seen, uh, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And so, <clears throat> Jesus's teaching uh, then is is uh, basically to lay out what this age is going to look like, what what you can expect, uh, because again, we're coming, we're here in Jerusalem. You believe that I am the Davidic Messiah. You need to understand what what the what my true reign is going to entail. We're not here to set up just another earthly kingdom. We're here building the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and this is something new. You need you need your new wineskins to be able to hold this wine, to be able to understand what I'm talking about. And so, <clears throat> so the first uh, things that he says here is that we need to guard ourselves against those who come in the name of Jesus, saying, I am he, and then also that we should not be alarmed by war and tumult. Okay, so both of these things are things that could uh, lead us astray, both of those who come as uh, pretenders claiming to speak in the name of Jesus, as well as war. These are things that can lead us astray, that can make us uh, uh, less confident in the kingdom of God. In fact, as we read on, we learn that this is kind of going to be the natural course of things during this age. The, the fact that Jesus is beginning to reign uh, after his death and resurrection does not mean that the age following that will be characterized by uh, unmitigated peace and um, the, you know the full reign of the Messiah on earth. Um, no, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against uh, kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes and terrors and great uh, and, and pestilence. Um, and then there's also going to be persecution of you, my followers, the people who, the citizens of this kingdom will be persecuted by the citizens of this world. Uh, you will be delivered up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought between kings and governors for my namesake. So notice here also you get the um, opposition from uh, from the uh, early uh, Jewish religious establishment, which we know is a, a big thing in, in early Christianity, as well as Gentile rulers, and we should look at that not as a reason to despair, but as a, a, a an opportunity uh, to to bear witness. Um, and I will give you a mouth of wisdom. 
which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict. And even even uh, those of your close family, parents and, and brothers and relatives and friends will deliver you up and, and turn against you because, uh, because of your love for me, because you follow me. Then he talks about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Uh, again, a, a pretty a clear picture of what will happen to Jerusalem in uh, the several decades after Jesus is speaking these things. Um, he says, then know that its desolation has come near. When this happens, the time for God's judgment on Jerusalem is is here, and pretty much all you're going to be able to do is is flee the city. Um, let not those who are out in the country come back into the city or, or anything, because those are going to be a days of days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. It's going to be a, a particularly difficult time uh, for women who are pregnant or nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, that last phrase there in verse 24 about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled uh, there's a, it's a little bit ambiguous as to what exactly Jesus means by that, but um, if you're interested in kind of like reading a little bit more about what, at least what I think think is going on with that phrase, I would encourage you to take a look at Romans chapter 11, which speaks of this future hope um, of the salvation of quote-unquote all Israel, um, probably not meaning all uh, Jewish people who have ever lived but um, uh, this mass turning that is that is uh, towards the Lord that is anticipated in the future. Um, uh, basically, Paul talks about <clears throat> how we're currently in this time when uh, the, the the people, the Jewish people, are by and large do reject Jesus as their Messiah. But that will not always be so, and in fact. Um, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the church, then there will be a time of turning in the future back to the back to the Lord um, that is through Christ. Um, and uh, large numbers, and as Paul puts it, all Israel will be saved. So I think that that's kind of what Jesus is cluing into here. Um, this idea that now we are we are in what could be characterized as the um, as the age of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, but there will be a day when we look forward to the future salvation of Israel. Then in the next paragraph, in verses 25 through 28, you see all these signs in the heavens taking place and um, the foreboding of what is coming on the world. And at that time, then they will see the power, uh, the, 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 the Son of Man coming uh, in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is the, um, of course, the, the image that comes from to us from Daniel chapter 7, um, this, this son of man character receiving an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. And um, this, the, cha the challenge of the, in this um, paragraph, just as the corresponding one in Matthew 24, is whether or not we're to see this as Jesus's second coming, or is this um, simply an, an image to describe his uh, the, the receiving of his kingdom, the fact that he is seated at the right hand of glory and his enemies are being subjected to his feet. 
And uh, I think probably the, the best way to think about that is to say that um, there is a sense in which this is already being fulfilled, that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds even now, that he is, um, that, that he is, is receiving his kingdom and his authority from the Father, and indeed he already has. But there will be a time in the future when this happens absolutely, when this happens um, ultimately, and uh, when Jesus will return in a way that the Bible re- refers to as coming on the clouds of heaven. And so he tells them, "Look, take a look at this fig tree, and uh, and all the trees, in fact. And, and and when they come to leaf, you see that summer is coming near. And so when you see these things take place, know that the kingdom of God is near." Um, uh, and he says, "Truly, I say to you, this generation will not take uh, will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away." And just as in Matthew, I, I think that statement kind of does uh, uh, temper the view that Jesus is speaking only of his second coming. Um, no, it, it appears to be the case that <clears throat> many of the things that Jesus is speaking about in this chapter will happen during the lifetimes of those who are, are listening. And indeed, the establishment of the kingdom of God, the, the eternal reign of the Son of God, is something that we see enacted subsequent to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's that's the story that the book of Acts will begin to tell. And so <clears throat> watch yourselves. Okay, so the application for all of this is that is that you don't know the day or the hour that the Father is appointed for the uh, for the end of this age. Um, you also don't know the day of your death, right? And and so you we should live in a state of readiness as opposed to um, being weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Um, and you don't want this day to come upon you like suddenly like a trap, okay? Uh, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And I think it's important to realize that, that that is what we are practically to do with the Bible's teachings about the future, because it's easy to kind of get stuck in exactly what does this refer to and exactly what does that refer to and you know all these things, which are legitimate questions and things that we should pursue. But if we don't take away from it um, the message to be ready, that this is real, this is going to, this is happening now and it's going to happen in the future, and that there will be a day when the Son of Man comes and will we will all, you know, be required to as he says, stand before him. So that should be what we take away from our musings about what is to come. And then we're told finally that every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in a mountain called Olivet. Uh, and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus is actually not staying in Jerusalem, uh, but rather uh, nearby. And, uh, and every morning he comes into the temple to continue teaching. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks again so much for joining me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.